This episode of Standard Orbit is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program for the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. Want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hi, this is Robin Curtis, and I played Lieutenant Savick in Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. And you're listening to Standard Orbit on Trek FM. Risk is our business. It's like nothing we've dealt with before. My golly, Jim, I'm beginning to think I can cure a rainy day. I can't change the laws of physics. Now in standard orbit, sir. Welcome, everyone, to Standard Orbit, Trek FM's dedicated podcast to the original and new cast of Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. I am Zach Moore, and with me this week is Darren Mooney, author, critic, and webmaster of The Movie Blog, completing our trilogy of original series discussions. Welcome, Darren. Uh, Thank you for having me, Zach. It's a pleasure, and it's kind of interesting the way that we worked very thoroughly backwards to get to this point. Um, So we're completing the trilogy by looking at the first season. Yes, as we were talking about before we got started, uh, the takes are getting significantly less hot <laughs> as yeah, we as continue. They, uh, on. Yeah, because it was like the third season. I was the third season that came in kind of roaring hot, and you know, you know, hot take is a strong word to use because I, I think it's a fair argument, and you know, I think I made it reasonably well in inverted commas. But you know, it's like it is in Star Trek fandom. It's a bit controversial in inverted commas to suggest that the third season maybe defined a lot of what we think about when we think about Star Trek today. So that was like a piping hot comment. Last year, you know, we talked about the second season and the kind of like the influence of Gene L. Coon and the various producers and stuff like that and the battle and the push and the pull between those. And that's a little bit kind of heated and contentious in terms of like the legacy of the people involved. And then we reached the first season and I think you and I sat down and we were like, this is pretty good. Everybody agrees this is pretty good. I think we agree with everybody that this is pretty good. (laughs) Yeah, would you consider the first season of Star Trek... The original series, the best season of Star Trek, period. That's a tough one. It's definitely the best first season of Star Trek ever made. Yeah. Um, and it's Great. certainly, I would argue, in my top ten, probably in my top five. I'm not sure it would take one for me. I think that one is a three-way battle between the third season of The Next Generation, fourth season of Deep Space Nine, and fifth season of Deep Space Nine, which is kind of cheating. It's like, yeah, that we can mash them together and call them one season, right? Um, <laughs> but I would be, suspect that if I were putting a list together, and this is an interesting one, because again, this gets at how you rank seasons of television. Because what we talked about, we talked about the second season of kind of, you know, the original series, was the way in which because you switch producers, like in the final third of the season, 
it becomes almost a completely different show. It's like all the stuff that Gene Alcoon was doing, where it was like introducing a bit of comedy into the mix, trying to bring up the Klingons as a recurring threat. You know, this kind of metaphor for Vietnam and the Cold War gets suddenly dropped. And it's like, oh, by the way, Kirk is now wrestling for giant brains. Um, and by the way, <laughs> we're doing Moby Dick. And oh, there's a giant space amoeba. Um, all this stuff kind of gets thrown in kind of out of nowhere at the final third. So it's, it's hard to kind of look at that as a cohesive season. Um, and kind of like, even though I think that, you know, the second season has some really great episodes and probably... Would it have more five-star episodes than the first season? It would certainly have almost as many. When you're ranking seasons for me, the season has to fit together as a whole. It has to work as a whole. It has to be like, I would sit down and watch these episodes as a set. And at the end of that experience, I would be like, well, that was an enriching experience. And what I think the first season has that the second season doesn't is that and this is gonna this comes with a huge asterisk, and anybody who's a Star Trek fan knows this is a huge asterisk, and probably knows the huge asterisk I'm about to gesture to. But as a rule, he says in inverted commas, the first season of Star Trek ramps up almost constantly throughout. It kind of it starts out really solid for, you know, a show populated by people who have no idea what they're doing in terms of not <laughs> having done anything like this before, not having a clearly defined sense of what Star Trek is because Star Trek didn't exist before this point, making it up as they go along. And I mean, I suspect we'll talk about that in a bit more depth in a little while. But, you know, nobody has any real sense of who's paying Kirk's checks, let alone if he's receiving checks, uh, how many <laughs> other aliens there are in the universe, what the relationship is between Earth and its nearest neighbors, what the distance is between Earth and its nearest neighbors, how fast the ship can go consistently, um, that sort of stuff. And then as you build, the show gets a bit more experimental. It starts throwing in new episodes. You get all of a sudden, well, what if we do a court episode? And it's like, that's that's a great idea. Let's do that. Or what if we do like a magic fantasy or episode with the rabbit from Alice in Wonderland? I was like, yeah, sure, we can do that too. What if we do an episode where they end up back in like 1968? And it's like, yeah, 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 I like that. Let's do that one too. And as it goes, it gradually adds to what Star Trek can be. And then you reach sort of the end of the season. And the end of the season has this tremendous run of episodes. And again, I'm talking about, we'll talk in a moment probably about like production order and, and broadcast yes. order. And if well, one, of my, one of my favorite side topics is production <laughs> order versus broadcast order. <laughs> um, but like watching it in production order, and we can argue about whether we think, you know, whether there's a merit to that or, or kind of internal continuity and stuff. But watching it in production order, it's like watching a kid and again this sounds really kind of saccharine and cheesy and i apologize watching a kid on an ice skating rink who is just gradually building up momentum and speeds so that by the time you reach that run of episodes including you know space seeds uh space seed you know this side of paradise i, I would argue mm -hmm. as well you get into stuff like say errand of mercy devil in the dark um and you know the city on the edge of forever and you have a run of episodes where star trek at the end of its first year in existence, produces episodes that I would not feel ashamed to say are the best the show has produced in its 50, you know, 50 plus years at this stage uh, in existence. And it's just magic to watch. That that first season, I rewatched it end to end, you know, a couple of years ago for the release of Think Into Darkness. And watching it back to back in a run is a tremendous experience as a whole. So it's one of those things where, you know, I don't know if the individual parts, you know, are always the best parts, but the season as a whole is just this tremendous journey. It's a roller coaster that admittedly, and this is where the asterisk arises, uh, when you get to Operation Annihilate takes a very sharp drop very suddenly, <laughs> but at least it's over very quickly. 
but like as it goes you're ramping up and up and up and up and it's just it's it's amazing to watch in those terms so that would probably be why it would be maybe my fourth favorite star trek season ever yeah that's a great point it's as if they they just all ended one episode sooner <laughs> They could have ended on such a great note for on Take City a break. Edge of Forever. Yeah. Take yeah. a break. Just call it a quits. You know, Operation Annihilate, uh, I've never really been the biggest fan of it. Some people are. Uh, I, I There's really not a lot of bad episodes in the first season yes. of the original series. That is one of them, in my opinion. Uh, I kind of shrug would... at that one. Uh, <laughs> I'd be like, like, I mean, it's, it's a very weird episode. And again, this is the thing where because, you know, this was in the 60s and this was how television worked. And, you you know, you didn't necessarily have the idea of inverted commas, a series finale. There yes. wasn't a bit where you kind of sat down and you're like, well, we need, you know, we need to make sure the viewers come back next year. So we have to end on an inverted commas event story. Um, and, and again, I think we talked about this in the second season as well, where the second season of Star Trek has a similar sort of structure to it as well, where there's a real sense you get to the end of the season and it's like, well, uh, probably want to launch my spinoff now, I guess. Um, <laughs> or, or the third exactly. season where you have like this really beautiful story, this love story at the end of time, where it's like Spock, who is, you know, one of the breakout characters on the show. It's incredibly moving. It's sweet. It's about the passage of time. And you're like, well, the show's wrapping up. This would probably be a nice thing to do. And you're like, no, I have this script about how women can't lead and command starships. That's going to be our closing moment. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy. <laughs> they, they did not look at it the same way because we, you had yeah, you know you had TV fair. season starting in September and ending in June, <laughs> you know, yeah. as opposed to this well, day and age where it's like you know there's February sweeps and May sweeps yeah. and mid season breaks. It's a completely different mindset when it comes to television. So when you try to put the framework of today back yeah. then, it just makes all kinds of wacky sense because because you're absolutely right. It's like oh this is a thematically this is a perfect way to end the season or or to keep people on the edge of their seat for the next season. But that that is not the case here. It's basically just just pull a random episode out of a hat and that's the one that's going to be next. Well, because you got to keep in mind that like if they were thinking long term, if they were thinking that this thing has a future, they certainly weren't thinking, well, it's going to be released on DVD or VHS or whatever, because hmm. those things didn't exist at the time. There was never a sense that you were going to package and sell to an individual consumer a season of television that they would watch on their own. If anybody was going to end up watching Star Trek after you finished working on the episode and it aired on that slot, it was going to be in syndication. So there was never going to be a gap. You were going to jump right, ironically enough, you're going to jump right from Operation Annihilate into Cat's Paw. Um, yeah. You know, there, <laughs> nobody would have any sense that the season had ended or that anything meaningful had happened. You're going to go straight from, um, straight from, yeah, that, uh, uh, what's the um, assignment Earth um, into, what was the first? Oh, Spock's Brain. Um Spock's Brain was first in broadcast. So, uh, I, believe, was I believe Spectre of the Gun was, was production, production, and Spock's yeah. Brain was broadcast. Oh, but which is a great yeah, choice. It's, <laughs> well, it's it's crazy because in a perfect world, right? You could like you could say, all right, well, I want this one first, and this one next, and this and that. But the realities of of television production, especially 1960s television production with a cutting edge show where they were doing special effects yeah. and things no one had ever done before, they were just like 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 What's first ready? season, right? We, we can we, let's go ahead and jump into yeah. that production versus broadcast order the corbinite mover is a perfect introductory episode to this concept of what star trek is but it was a heavy special effects episode so it got pushed back to like episode 10 yeah. <laughs> you know and, and broadcast order and instead we get a you know monster of the week with the man trap and uh which which i think is an underrated episode really a lot of it's got a lot of flack over the years like well that wasn't our best episode to show people and and i understand because it it, it is um, lost in space esque, so to speak. Yeah. You have a it's not a of the week. statement of what Star Trek is in inverted commas, you know. Right, 
but it's yeah, also you... something that works for audiences, which is great. Like it's you, you put it on and people know what this is. It's vampires in space, right? Yes. <laughs> so, by the way, I, I think I'm going to title this episode "Inverted Commas," Darren, <laughs> because I, I, I appreciate your. <laughs> My Your, uh, gestures. Yeah, clarification. Sorry. Yeah, because <laughs> you know, obviously, we can see each other. The listeners yeah. won't be able to. So you want you want to get a point, get the point across of what you're saying. Yeah. So I, inverted commas, it is very good. Please continue <laughs> that trend. But uh, you know, production versus broadcast order. What are your thoughts on where No Man Has Gone Before, and if they should have shown that first? It's actually my favorite episode of the original series ever. Uh, hot, Hot take, perhaps. Yes. Whoa, that, that, uh, there's your hot take. Jesus, Zach, you've been sitting on that one. Like, it's like, we were sitting down and we were like, we don't have anything controversial to discuss. That's your favorite episode of the original series. Can it, I ask why? Give me an intro. Like, lay it on me. It, it is indeed, because I, I feel like it it captures everything that Star Trek is about. It's about, you know, space adventure. They're going out to the literal edge of the galaxy. Right? But it's also about the human condition. We have a pre-established kind of relationship between crew members here. Kirk and Gary Mitchell is his best friend. Uh, normal guy, kind of just average dude, gets powers, not of his own accord. You know, just it happens yeah. to him. And then as the episode grows and his power grows, we get the whole absolute power corrupts absolutely. What would you do with the? What would you do if you were given these extraordinary powers? Would we all fall into this trap? Uh, and then it's, it's it's a true moral dilemma, right? Because it's yeah. Kirk's best friend. Do we kill him? Do we leave him on this planet? Uh, of course, it does. It does come down to nice a nice fisticuffs on an alien planet, right? Is which is again, it's also very Star Trek. <laughs> yes, right. So uh, the the planet set, the ripped shirt for Captain Kirk, right? The only thing missing here is Doctor McCoy. I feel obviously his character's not in this episode, but other than that, this is a full package. And then yeah, it's such a great definition of Spock. And showing his worldview versus, you know, the average human, like Kirk, for example, who he talks the most in the episode, worldview. And I think that really informs the character, although Spock looks a little different. You know, his his form is still coming into being. And if you watch these in production order, you can see how Nimoy and the writers and everybody settle in to who Spock is. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you're going to show someone this is what Star Trek is all about, I would show them that episode. And I think they would get it. You know, because if you, because I've talked about this on and off over the years on Center Orbit, like City on the Edge Forever, everybody ranks at number one. But does it, is it the best example of what Star Trek is? No. <laughs> it's a great science fiction story. Harlan Olsen is obviously a fantastic writer. Uh, and everyone who did the rewrites, like Gene Roddenberry, yes. <laughs> Dorothy Fontana, et cetera, et cetera, were excellent yeah. as well. But if you show someone that, they're really not going to get what Star Trek is, in my opinion. But if you show them where No Man Has Gone before, they will. So that's kind of my take in a nutshell. Ooh, that's that's interesting. And by the way, I didn't mean for it to sound as accusatory as it probably did. Zach, oh, answer no, the no, question. No. <laughs> this is not like this is not like Omega Glory Gate from yeah. last time. And I was like, I like that one. You're like, this is one of the worst hours of television ever produced. <laughs> <laughs> that's a very good impersonation, by the way. Um, no, no, I, I get that about it. And, but and again, this is the thing where you talk about production order because I think that when you do watch it in production order, you see these elements kind of kind of materialize and kind of like crystallize into into what they're supposed to be. And I, I don't even mean things like, so for example, the, the uniform that George Takei is wearing or the color of costume that he's wearing or, you know, the kind of the hierarchy on the Enterprise. Because I think there's some debate, obviously, uh, whether Gary Mitchell is the first officer um, in mm-hmm. Where No Man Has Gone Before. One of those great fandom debates as well. And I, and I love that debate, if only because it implies that Spock really just manipulated Kirk into killing his best friend so he could get yeah. a plum job. Um, but... <laughs> Like, outside of that, though, like, as the show goes on, I think it kind of crystallizes into the form you consider Star Trek. And I think 
I'm not entirely sure I would agree entirely with your City on the Edge for Forever point, although I do see where you're coming from. Because I do think that even that scene where they're staring up at the stars is very Star Trekian in mm. terms of like philosophy and central kind of tenet. But, and here's the thing, my moment, right? Like if we're watching the first season, we're pointing at it and I'm like the moment that Star Trek becomes Star Trek, like in, in kind of your archetypal, this is what Star Trek is. And, and again, inverted commas episode, um, you, I would point to the devil in the dark. I think the devil mm. in the dark is the moment at which everybody working on Star Trek figures out in a grand philosophical sense what Star Trek can be. Because I think up until that point, they're figuring out what it can be in practical terms they're figuring out what they can do with it they're figuring out what they can get away with and i think you know as i said earlier i think they have a very strong idea of the gate i think you're entirely right that a lot of those elements are there in where no man has gone before like literally journeying beyond the edge of the galaxy as you pointed out is a very like very expressive way of saying this is what star trek is it's the final frontier we have literally have them cross a frontier in the first episode in order to literalize that concept but i think there is a bit of looseness there for me and it's kind of like as it goes the devil in the dark because that's the one that you go to and you go well it has a, a star trek moral you know it has a sort of a central point to it it has this idea that's kind of very fundamental almost ace of fable-esque which is the idea yes. that something that doesn't look like us, you know, is worthy of respect and, and can have autonomy and can, you know, be valued and respected. And we don't have to understand it entirely in order to appreciate that it is a living thing that deserves, you know, us, you know, not to do the Twilight Zone monsters that you go on Maple Street sort of thing that the miners kind of get whole scale into uh, mm. when the when the killings start. So I really, really like that episode. And I would argue that's the moment for me that Star Trek becomes Star Trek. I should point out. I don't think it's even the best episode of the season. It's just the episode that is when I think of Star Trek, what I think about. Well, and that's a great counterpoint to the man trap, which is it's a very similar beats to it, right? As oh, you yeah. know, the first broadcast monster. episode, yeah. monster of the week, we have to kill it. We do kill it. Oh, it's a shame <laughs> we killed it, but it's dead now. So we're going to move on uh, as opposed to this. one. No, let's understand the creature. Let's, you know, I, yeah. that, that is the difference of a Star Trek versus a generic sci-fi show of the week is devil of the dark. You're absolutely right. Yeah. No, and I think that's sort of fair. And I think the show kind of gets there and it kind of builds there. And it's interesting that you do see the elements that you associate with Star Trek. They aren't all there at the start. I think you point out, obviously, Dr. McCoy is, is not present in Where No Man Has Gone Before. But even things like, say, you know, the, the Romulans, the Klingons are kind of added as you go along. The Klingons are a surprisingly late addition for, you know, probably the second most iconic Star Trek character ever. You know, the question of, like, does does Kirk work for Space Fleet Command or does he work for Starfleet? Um, the Space Vulcan Central, or the, the United Earth Space Probe Vespa. Agency. Yeah. Vespa, <laughs> which is just great. It's like Vespa, if it were more difficult to pronounce. Um, but also even things like, you know, is Spock a Vulcan or a Vulcanian? Um, and, like, what exactly is the relationship that exists between mankind and Vulcan and the Vulcanians? Where McCoy, who has been really abrasive, like, he's really abrasive to Spock from the start, which is that great dynamic, you pointed out, the characters interacting with one another. But, like, that dynamic takes on a slightly different tint if you're watching the episode and he's like, oh, by the way, I can see why your planet was conquered so many times. Like, well, this just got uncomfortable workplace banter. Um, whereas, obviously, <laughs> later on, if they're just like professional colleagues who are, you know, of equal standing, and McCoy hasn't, it doesn't belong to a military organization that has apparently occupied an enslaved Spock's planet, the dynamic's a little bit different, I think. Um, and you can see them kind of figuring yes, that yes. out as they go. Um, and I kind of really like that about the season because it, it is. There's a real sense of flying by the seat of their pants as they're doing it. Because this is, you know, 29 episodes, which is astounding. When you think about it today, when a modern mm -hmm. TV season is lucky to hit, what, 13, and in some cases, 8, you know? Yeah.
Yeah, between... back back when TV shows they worked hard for the thirty <laughs> yeah, episodes. They, of season. they just slack. Yeah, they just sort of lounge around. Um, Eight episodes every eighteen months on yeah. HBO. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I have this wonderful, wonderful sequence of like the imagining them on like True Detective, Matthew uh, Matthew McConaughey lying around getting ready for his eighteen uh, his eighteen minute take, and he's like, oh, "We could do it next week, right?" Um, but yeah, no, yes. but again, the level of I get you're right though. The level of kind of insanity involved in trying to realize that show, and again, it's something that we don't really keep in mind when we talk about it because this was i don't imagine like nobody making star trek um unless they were completely insane imagined that like well first of all nobody imagines myself and zach talking about it but that it would still be talked about at all <laughs> um like you know more than 50 years later that it would still be a topic of discussion that it would be a kind of a foundational part of our cultural landscape and like even so without that in mind even like disregarding the fact that they were making something that would be iconic and influential and important, the like the level of care that goes into producing that many episodes in that frame, that amount of time, you know, on that schedule, working that hard is is insane. Absolutely insane. Yeah. And they had to get to the point where they had to use an unaired pilot <laughs> to just meet the schedule. I mean, that's yeah. how breakneck it was. Now and this and I've never really even considered this or looked this up, but they obviously they had made the cage and they made where no man's gone before and they're like all right green light we're actually gonna make a show now but obviously we're never gonna use the cage for anything i do wonder if they had never intended to use where no man has gone before either uh and i, I you know that being my favorite episode i, I probably should have looked this up somewhere i don't know if this this information exists somewhere but it's so different than the rest of the show and then the fact that they aired it third which is the most random place ever I question, like, were they already running behind and had to, like, <laughs> slot that in? Because I understand, as much as I think it's a great introductionary episode of the show, it's so different than the rest of the series. It would feel like a bait and switch if they show you that for the first episode, and then you come back, and there's different characters and uniforms and sets, and nothing's the same. <laughs> You're like, what? This is not what I just watched last week. So I get the idea. But it seems to me it's like you either run it first or you don't run it at all. And they could have maybe creatively constructed something around it later like the cage if they needed to use it yeah. but the, to just throw it in third it's just so <laughs> random to me so. i love the idea of like that being introduced as evidence in spock's trial in the menagerie it's like yeah. uh, this isn't the first time you've caused trouble on the enterprise yes. spot exhibit p it could have been a three-parter <laughs> yeah. if we just start showing clips of where no man has gone before i love that um, but yeah no no you're right and i, kinda, I do wonder because there is a, they were obviously running desperately behind as well like again it was very much all up to the wire um again that's how tv production worked back in the day it was literally like it was a conveyor belt system it was you get the material out there you get it produced you get it again like this is the discussion what the role of directors is you know intelligent now versus then whereas a director your job was to manage the seven days that you were shooting and then basically pass it on and make somebody else got it through production and they got it in the slot so that it was on the slot and could air um it is absolutely insane and i do wonder now now that you've proposed the idea out there two weeks in being like <laughs> just <laughs> just use the use the pilot use the one we have it's done. <laughs> yeah. and, like, not only that but like you know how many episodes later it's like okay we already burned through the yeah 10 episodes later not even that it's uh, sorry nine episodes later i mean like damn it we already burned through the second pilot it's like what have we got what the hell have we got um because it does it's that story about um was it gone with the wind where you hear that like two days into shooting they were seven days behind schedule um, <laughs> that's another thing about you know, that we talk about the menagerie being the first two-parter of star trek history and yeah you put an asterisk by that because the, i've seen many 
like episode list. That's why it's like, are there 79 or 80 episodes of the original series? Does that count as one or two, right? Because, I mean, obviously that's just a pre-produced episode and then a produced episode split into two parts. But if you watch it in production order, you do Court Martial and you go to Starbase 11 with Commodore Stone and then you come right back <laughs> and you do the Menagerie with Commodore Mendez to Starbase 11. Like, could you just call it a different Starbase number? You know, that would have solved a lot of issues. Of course, this is what we're talking. We're talking <laughs> We're talking about United Earth Space Probe Agency. So what are they talking about? Starbase numbers, right? It just seems to me, why would you ever reuse a Starbase numbers, <laughs> you know, in, in the series? And then you get, so there are little things like that that actually make air date order make a little more sense. Although on the whole, I am team production order, Darren. I don't know about you. Not not even like not even sort of the, the broadcast or like Starbase Eleven being the issue there. It's like you've already done a Starbase Eleven episode where there's a trial on the ship. Like it's like, <laughs> it's like you can really tell how down to the wire they were on the menagerie. It wasn't just like let's reuse footage from the first pilot. It's like let's reuse the concept from the last episode that we did. <laughs> I can just see I can see Roddenberry like watching like the, the dailies of Court Marshall, like, oh alright, I know what I'm gonna do. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> if we pad this out with some footage from the from the first pilot, I think we can hit two episodes. Um, we can maybe get back to being only three weeks behind schedule. Um, well, yeah. I just I just think I just think on a on a you know because being so into this stuff as we are, we enjoy all like the behind the scenes evolution of it all. So from that yes. level, every, the the show makes sense to watch production order. But also just from a just a logical progression of things order like you can imagine oh well no man no man has gone before it happened and then they refit the ship and got it some new uniforms and then the rest of the show happened and yeah. uhura got a red uniform instead of a gold one a couple episodes yeah. in so you can just plug that stuff in your head canon if you yeah. watch a production order and air date order it makes no sense yeah <laughs> so. that's it's all very chaotic and very arbitrary and it will sort of like mush up now to be fair like it kind of works because the episodes are so like distinct from one another so it's like there's there's no real sense of continuity between them that mm-hmm. you can watch them all in any order whatsoever and it would yeah. arguably make as much sense without like you doing as you described the sort of meta uh continuity between them where you're going well obviously Aurora transferred divisions that's clearly what happened there um you know <laughs> or well, and to your point this is the only this is the only way people were going to watch it in the 60s like like as you were saying earlier once it goes through its uh, its first air on NBC and then perhaps a rerun over the summer, then it's it's done. No one's ever yeah. going to watch this again unless we sell in syndication. At that point, we're showing five episodes a week. We can, but that see that that also doesn't that also has always just just struck me as odd the fact that they couldn't say yeah, they're going to send these these film canisters out to the affiliates. Okay, yeah. they're all in a numbered <laughs> order, one through eighty. Just show them in that order and repeat. Why they? Oh no, we can't have any sort of continuing story. People will get confused. It's like I, I just, I, I've never understood that. I mean, well, that, that's the that's the sort of Ronald D. Moore argument um, about the like next generation. And like, I mean, to be fair, I get what Moore is coming from. And like, as somebody who likes serialization, and as somebody who like you know understands like for writers. That, that like writing a serialized story is kind of useful because it means that you can build on things and you can do like you can propel, propel yourself through it as opposed to start from scratch every week for 178 episodes and don't repeat yourself. Um, but at the same time, 
I don't even think that the issue with syndication is the idea of like, you know, people mixing up the order on air dates, although undoubtedly <laughs> that did happen. It's also it's also, um, I suspect, the fact that it's people tuning in. So it's like, you know, kids coming home from school and it's like, so what happens if Bobby's in detention for three days? Uh, can he come back and can he watch Friday's Star Trek episode? And you know, will it make as much sense to him? Or, you know, what about somebody who isn't really paying attention during it? You know, uh, you know, father's, you know having a conversation or doing the ironing or something like that. And, you know, he has, he didn't really pay attention on Tuesday, but like on Wednesday, he's got a clean slate and he's sitting down. Can he pay attention and follow where it's going? So I kind of un- understand that, like historically in terms of like the logic of this sort of production. And I completely get that, you know, it really doesn't matter in what order you watch them at all. I would, I would probably hew closer to the, the kind of production order for the reasons you mentioned. Not, not necessarily even like the internal continuity stuff, although that's great. And actually um, stuff like, it's great watching writers kind of like in the spin-off media and in licensed media playing with that stuff. Yeah. Um, like, so for example, it's, it's David or George III, I think is the, the one who argues about like, you know, uh, was it um, Mitchell being the kind of second in command for, you know, second in command and how that arc plays out for Spock, for example, which is an, in- like, it's a great way of taking something that, you know, doesn't necessarily fit if you watch the episode, but becomes something deeper if you try to contextualize it. And I think that I like those gaps as well. But just in terms of production, it it works for me because of that arc that I described, where it's it's like finding Star Trek. It's like you're watching, and again, this is this is one of the things where really pretentious Darren moment coming up here. But like I studied, <laughs> I studied law in college, and one of the things that I really liked about law is this airy fairy pretentious idea, which is in no way true. He says as he's about to say it, <clears throat> but the idea that like the ideal of law or justice or the ideal of the way the world is meant to be exists out there in the darkness waiting for you to find it and what the process of law is is through argument and through discussion and through debate finding that shape in the darkness reaching your hand out and saying well this is an elephant this shape that i'm seeing here that this is what law is that you kind of probe it like it's always been there it's always existed fundamentally, whether, you know, in a human condition, um, through the way that our brains work, or if you want to get more spiritual or philosophical in the way the universe is ordered. And like part of, and again, I know this is nonsense, but it's romantic <laughs> nonsense. And I love romantic nonsense. And when you watch the first season of Star Trek in production order, it almost feels like Star Trek as a concept is that elephant in the darkness and the writers are kind of pushing towards it and you can see little things coming through like you pointed out like Nimoy discovering Spock and obviously with DC Fontana um, God rest her soul but DC Fontana obviously coming in and doing rewrites and, and helping out on things like obviously this side of paradise but earlier in the season like the naked time where you have that like that wonderful spock sequence i know everybody loves the sulu sequence with the, the you know the sword and the fencing but that sequence with spock which is the foundational core of i think what a lot of people think of as spock's character like mm-hmm. that's the moment and like it's such a perfect moment because it feels even though it didn't exist until it was written and performed. It feels like it could never have been any other way for him. And a lot of that happens throughout the kind of first season of Star Trek as a whole, where you see ideas that are suggested that, you know, are new and novel and strange. Like, what what about doing a court-martial episode? Um, what about doing a legal episode? And it's like that, like, when you proposed that in 1966 or 1967, that must have been a very strange thing for your Lost in Space kind of spin-off. It's like, let's do a procedural law and order type episode with, like, cross-examination and, like, a murder investigation and an inquiry there. But now, 
like you have an entire subgenre of Star Trek court episodes, obviously including things like The Measure of a Man and Author Author and stuff like that. It's an accepted part of what Star Trek is. But to, to suddenly to stumble across it in the middle of your first season is it just kind of works for me. And again, it's it's all building to things like the arrival of the Klingons and, and kind of, you know, the, the Horta and all that wonderful stuff in the city on the edge of forever, which I know. And again, this is me being a romantic and, you know, being like, you know, this is like a meaning I impose on the outside because I'm well aware that everybody was like, Jesus Christ, are we going to hit that deadline Um, as they were going along? It's like, just, I don't care. Make it work. Find a way to make it work. Get something in front of the cameras. But it kind of like, it feels like Star Trek materializes if you watch it in broadcast order. It feels like it kind of takes form in front of your eyes. And I mean, even little things like, you know, the kind of Shakespearean references in Dagger of the Mind. You know, Shakespeare becoming a key reference for the franchise as it goes on. Um, and, and just little things like that all seem to add up. Ar- Arena, for example, with that idea of, you know, Kirk showing mercy and that being rewarded. And this idea of kind of like utopian idealism, which again feels like a precursor of what the season does later on with the Horta. Uh, but just does it much clearer there. So it's like, well, we have a gem of a good idea. Let's refine that down and let's get it to its purest form. Aaron and Mercy, Devil in the Dark, Arena, all... By Gene Kuhn. <laughs> yes. Sorry. <laughs> Long-term listeners of, of my appearances on this podcast may sense a recurring theme happening there. But yeah, no, no, it is. And you can see um, Kuhn kind of figuring out what he, what not what he wants Star Trek to be, but what he thinks Star Trek is. And again, you get that a lot of that in the second season when he kind of steps up properly into the showrunner kind of role. And you start seeing more of the idea of empires coming into Star Trek. Because one of the interesting mm-hmm. things about the first season is that you don't have the Romulans appear once. Uh, the Klingons appear once. The Klingons appear once at the very end of the season, out of absolutely nowhere, with absolutely no <laughs> allusion to the fact that apparently... Well, as we... you know, we have been in conflict <laughs> with these Klingons for several years. <laughs> yeah, it just never came up um, in, in any of the yeah. previous episodes that we made. Yeah, point. at least in Balance of Terror with the Rylands, it was like, well, we had a war with them like 100 years ago, we haven't seen them in a while, and they're back, and so, yeah, but, but it, you know, Next Generation does something very similar with the Cardassians at the beginning of season four. It's like, well, you know, when I was on the Stargazer a few years ago, the Cardassian war, like, what are you talking about? I thought we were at peace. <laughs> yeah, you guys never mentioned that. This seems like the kind of thing that would probably come up a little bit. Uh, but yeah, and there is this weird sense. But even even that, like even the stuff with the Romulans, where the Romulans have kind of gone off, there's this also this odd sense where you have to explain how the Romulans are close enough to Earth that they could have waged war without warp drive. Um, which again, gives a sense that like nobody has a sense of how big the Star Trek universe is at that point, because it's still mm. constantly expanding. Uh, but like, and again, you have this kind of sense of figuring it out because like one of the things that's interesting, again, when you mentioned during the first season, I kind of went through the episodes and kind of had a bit of thought about it. And it's it's interesting how the first season of Star Trek doesn't have a lot of what we would call quote unquote politics in terms of obviously it has political subtext. There's a lot of Vietnam stuff in there happening. There's a lot of discussion about, say, the emergence of the counterculture. Uh, you know, I mean, again, Operation Annihilate is about a wave of madness spreading across the universe. Uh, I wonder what we could have been talking about. Or Dagger of the Mind, which is about mind altering substances um, that are causing people to have psychotic breakdowns. Again, I wonder what they could be talking about. Uh, but like, in terms of like the idea of the Federation existing because we didn't know what the Federation was or in terms of Starfleet and how it exists because we didn't know what that was. You just have this vague idea that there's a ship out there, there's people on the ship, they're exploring space. And what you have is you have almost like this kind of loosely formed kind of concept that, and again, this is something that speaks to, obviously the show is is rooted in kind of Kennedy era optimism coming out of the Second World War and, and America kind of looking at its place in the world. And it's like, after the Second World War, we are the world superpower now. 
and trying to make sense of that. And again, you can filter a lot of what comes later through that. Obviously, Kuhn filters stuff like, say, the, the relationship with Klingons through the Cold War, you know, to pick an example, obviously, in, in a private little war and even the Trouble with Tribbles, uh, which are great. The Trouble with Tribbles is underrated as a Cold War commentary. But um, even, even here, you have this idea of humans being relatively new in space um, and being surrounded by... And this is, again, this is something I think maybe touches on the idea of, like, you know, Star Trek as an expression of American utopianism and idealism after the Second World War projected into the future. But humans are kind of, we're, we're new at this stuff. We're just out there. We're adventuring. We're exploring. We're figuring it out. And we're surrounded by the decaying remains of dead species and empires. And, you know, you look at episodes like The Man Trap is, is a prime example of that. Um, or, on the other hand, you know, sort of we're we're dealing with the remains of kind of or, or the remnants of kind of previous structures and, and entities that once ruled this universe that were kind of once powerful and once shaped and defined it but it just kind of drifted off and got kind of bored and you know there's any number of god-based episodes there charlie x being the second one that aired where you have these things that are completely above like their understanding or mankind's understanding but obviously like the squire of gothos which hinges on that incredible twist which i don't think people value enough because the episode has been sort of like so absorbed by pop culture but the yeah. twist that trelane is just a spoiled child acting out uh, which is fantastic as well. Also, that Star Trek takes place 800 years in the future in that episode, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, we're still figuring out as we're going along. But yeah, it just sort of like, it, it's interesting how, because you don't have that kind of firm sense of like how everything fits together, you have a kind of a broader idea of what Star Trek in inverted commas is about. You know, you have like the old ones in What Are Little Girls Made Of, for example. Mm -hmm. You have like the, the, the pleasure planet in Shore Leave, which is implied to be built the remnants of some, you know, ancient society that's long gone. You know, you have this whole thing kind of playing out where there's a sense, and, and like throughout the season, you don't really have that many powers that are equivalent to the Federation. Typically, Kirk is interacting with aliens or with cultures that are kind of less advanced, you know, even in, say, you know, the uh, A Taste of Armageddon. The two planets that are at war are clearly, you know, less advanced than the Federation is, for example. But even going down in like Returns, Return of the Archons, for example, you're dealing with kind of a planet that is, is less advanced or less kind of less reach or less power than the Federation or than Starfleet has. And kind of like it's interesting that you can see Star Trek playing with kind of like its fundamental or some of the fundamental ideas underpinning it, even if it hasn't quite figured out how to articulate them as clearly as it does later on through kind of metaphor and allegory and social commentary. It's like those ideas, and I, I don't want to call them fears and anxieties because that makes it sound really melancholy and dark and twisted because they're not. It's, it's very much, it's, it's almost hope. It's the belief that, you know, well, the Second World War is over. Um, America, which is a country that, you know, largely isolated for portions of the you know 20th century and industrial power, the collapse of, you know, the, the British Empire and other you know, European empires has kind of left a void. And into that, you have this idea of America, which at that point was a young nation, but an enthusiastic one, an optimistic one, and, you know, a hopeful one. You know, we do not do these things because they are easy. We do the Sorry, I shouldn't do the accent. We do these things because they are hard. That sort of thing. It's like that sort of, uh, I can't even tell you were trying to do a Kennedy impersonation. I don't think I, I think it happened subconsciously. We don't do these things because they're easy, but because they are hard. There you go. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, listeners can direct their comments. But you have again, you have all this stuff playing through. In the sense, the writers maybe haven't thought about them in like a grand big idea sense, 
but they're all there as you're watching. Yeah, well, it shows you the mindset of everybody yeah. at the time. You know, yeah. it's not like they didn't sit down yeah. and like have a writer's Bible and like, this is what we're going for here. It's just, this is what sprung from the creative yeah, the minds of the time. Yeah, that's exactly. Um, and that's the, kind of th- that's the kind of stuff that I love uh, about it as a kind of a capsule. Because it is, it's not like they were writing for posterity. Because again, there was a sense of like TV was seen as being something that was disposable because there was no home media. You know, and again, like syndication, as we mentioned, was a goal. But you had to hit 100 episodes to hit syndication in most cases. Um, so Star Trek fell just short of that. And nobody could have predicted that you would be talking about it. This was just stuff that was in the air and Star Trek was picking up on and running with. And I kind of love that it's there from the outset. You know, it's kind yeah. of, it's baked in. Well, it's fascinating that you point you point this out on a lot of your reviews. And as you just said, like the Enterprise, Kirk, the, they operate in this, and humanity, they operate in this middle ground, you know, between you know, super powerful godlike beings that are far beyond our comprehension and then like less advanced races that we have to not break the prime directive and interact yeah. with. And then there's like, you know, some colonists here or, you know, yeah. something like that. But there's nothing because 50 plus years later, we look back and there's been, of course, all these books and comics and and you expand it prequels, right? You expand what came later to before, and you think, oh yeah, the Enterprise is the flying around the neutral zones over there, and you, you see this the stellar yeah. cartography charts, and yeah, in, in the first season in 1966-1967, it was just it was a void, it was nothing, you know, there was no neutral zone or any of that, right? Yeah, I imagine if Gene Halcoon had gotten a marker and tried to draw it on a whiteboard, somebody would have thrown it at him. Somebody would have thrown yeah. it. It's like, why are you worried about this stuff? Um, it's like the neutral zone's there because I say it's there this week, Gene. That's why the neutral zone is, and, you know, and perhaps that's why something like Khan was such a iconic. Obviously, Ricardo Montalban was yeah. a amazing actor and a powerful presence on screen, and just a very charismatic character. Uh, but you know, he was a, a human adversary for Kirk, but from a different time, though. But yeah. from our past now, but from the future <laughs> of the show at the time. So it was such a cool concept, and that's you know to have a kind of a one on one kind of like at the same level adversary was unique for Star Trek. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, that's arguably the thing about the Wrath of Khan, and that, like for better and worse. And you know, we can have a separate podcast about the Wrath of Khan sometime, where I guarantee you, I have some very hot takes. Um, <laughs> but uh, and I and I say that as somebody who loves the Wrath of Khan, to be absolutely clear. But yeah, you have this kind of sense of, of Khan. Well, well, well Khan, I, I will uh, the, to to kind of tease that. Perhaps I, I do feel like Khan is a more interesting character in Spacey than he is in the Wrath of Khan. So. I, I would I would almost agree with that as well. I think the mm-hmm. Space Seed is a more interesting episode in some cases. I think that Wrath of Khan is probably a more effective narrative. And it's kind of interesting mm-hmm. when we talk about like what Star Trek is. Because we obviously, we have very like, you know, philosophical, bold ideas of what Star Trek is. When you're making Star <laughs> Trek, your idea of what Star Trek is, is what whatever people will watch. Um, is basically, <laughs> like, that. that's the reason why the Man Trap is the first one to air. It's because we think this is the one that people watching television will go, hey, I could watch more of this, as opposed mm-hmm. to a statement of what Star Trek is. But yeah, the, the Space Seed and where you have that thing, because you can guarantee when, when they were writing Space Seed, and they're like, you know, from the distant future of the 1990s, they're like, mm-hmm. nobody is ever going to have to worry about this as they're writing it down, <laughs> which is great. Um, but yeah, no, and then it kind of is, it is interesting that you have, you actually do have very little of that as you go through the first season. You have very little of kind of like actual proper one-on-one opposition for Kirk. And it's kind of, and I think you have like, you could argue in, in court martial, you have the guy who's setting him up and you have like, obviously later on, like, cause you do see that they figure out, they figure out, and again, this is the thing that they figure out with Shatner and it's, it's figuring out as you go. So you figure out with Nimoy that you can get him to layer stuff in his performance. You can get him like, 
And again, that, that wonderful observation, and it's something that the, the reboot movies have made very literal in the sense of, like, this is stating a theme as, you know, we're going to state theme in dialogue. But, like, with the original Star Trek, you have Nimoy kind of figuring out that it's not playing Spock without emotions, it's playing Spock as somebody who has deeply buried very strong emotions. And with Shatner, as you're going, you can see the writers figuring out what we need to do with Shatner is we need to give him somebody he can play off and bounce off and somebody who will give a forceful performance in response to his forceful performance. Because obviously you have Spacey, but then, you know, a couple of episodes later, you have Errand of Mercy with uh, John Cagullis as, 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 Thor, uh, sorry, as Core. And um, you have this kind of like, you have these actors because <laughs> they're, they're not subtle actors. They're not actors who are kind of like, layer, you know, I love them both. They're not actors who deliver these sort of like very subdued and restrained and kind of simmering performances. They're actors who will like rest the scenery from Shatner's jaws um, as they're doing what they're doing. And that's why it works so well. And again, that's a sense of figuring out what you can do with Shatner. And you can argue that Shatner himself is kind of figuring out, at, figuring it out as he goes. I mean, you know, the enemy within, which is like, I think the, what the fourth episode produced is probably the first time you get full Shatner, but you see, and and you get full Shatner because the premise of the episode requires full Shatner. It's like, yeah, I, 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 I of course love that episode, but like to, to see it taken out of context so many times in memes, it's like, Oh, look, look at the cheesy Star Trek acting. Like, all right, look, (laughs) this is a very specific (laughs) situation. you, You say, you say that as if explaining the very specific context will make it sound less insane. This man was split between good and evil in a transporter accident. Okay. <laughs> to the baser instincts of the animalistic and the... <laughs> it's perfectly rational. It makes perfect sense. It's like the... <laughs> It's like the people complaining about, like, I don't know how soon we're going to release this, but this will probably date the podcast. That marriage story meme where people are yelling about the scene of uh, Scarlett Johansson and Adam Driver yelling at one another. It's like, you know, if you put it in context, they're still yelling at each other really aggressively. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny, uh, just to, to make a note on that, people are complaining about that. I'm like, wow, that that feels more real life than so many arguments that yeah. I've seen in movies and TV shows that are so sanitized and everyone has just the proper thing to say, just to see two people kind of like stumbling around just putting their emotions out there, yelling loudly at the chair. That is, uh, maybe, you know, people just get into some real arguments sometimes. Right? That's what, that just feels this. more accurate to me, but anyway. That's life advice to you. <laughs> this is like the podcast equivalent of that fight club bit where you have to start a fight with somebody. I was like, go out there and start an argument with somebody. Uh, maybe don't. Um, but yes, um, that little moment, the moment, it's the moment at the end where, where a driver turns around and punches the wall in frustration. That's the bit that kind of really sells it for me. And mm-hmm. yeah, I do wonder, again, somebody pointed out, it's, it's like when you watch, and again, we're wandering very off topic, but it's like when you watch, um, when I watch a lot of uh, American movies, like say Star Wars or even Inception, and there's all this kind of stuff in there about people's relationship with their parents. And I watch those episodes, it's like I, I watch those films, it's like, man, this stuff seems to really, and even in Star Trek, it comes up, obviously, with, with Spock and his father. I watch this and I'm going, am I, am I just... Do I just, am I just really lucky that I have a really healthy relationship with my parents? That I find this very odd that everybody's so fixated on this theme. Um, it's it's an easy fiction trope, yeah. I think. I mean, you think about that and you look ac- across all of Star Trek, right? Uh, no one has a nuclear family or a normal family life, yeah. you know? I mean, even even Kirk had had a bro- at Operation Nile, brother and wife killed, right? Dead. What a traumatic two weeks he has at the end of the first season. It's like he lost the love of his wife. Oh, by the way, his brother and his sister in law are dead. It's like Jesus. Somebody needs to take a long vacation before you jump uh, off into Catspaw. He does seem more upset though that Spock was blind for a while. 
<laughs> he's just processing. He's just working through it. The um, fact that Spock was blind for like six hours was much more upsetting to him than the fact that his brother and his sister-in-law are dead. Yeah. But you know, you have that. You know, Spock and his family issues, as you find out uh, over the course of Star Trek, he has more and more uh, sibling <laughs> issues as time goes on. You know, so uh, Riker and his dad hate each other. You know, it's, yeah. it's, it's so it's it's they rely on that. But you know, I think and it just kind of ties it back to something I was thinking about earlier. You know, Star Trek, uh, its malleability is its strength, yes. you know? I mean, if you if you have to have an episodic TV show where, where you have to reset everything to one every week, it's like, all right, we'll do a Western, and we'll do a, a law procedural, and now we'll do a survival story or something like that, or we'll, now we'll do a doppelganger episode. So you do that kind of stuff, and then you also have to, you pull from those story tropes, but you also pull from the hill, okay, uh... Daddy issues, or you know, something like that. You know, that, that is why so many of these things keep popping up. I think. Yeah, and I, I think you're onto something there in terms of like figuring out what Star Trek could be, because it's worth noting. I would argue, and this is probably something where I, you know, this is one of those maybe there's a qualification here. But I think that if you look at the first season of Star Trek, you can trace the genesis of almost every type of Star Trek episode back to that season. Like you can trace every kind of episode that I think Star Trek has really done from that point. You know, you can trace, and obviously there's a sense of evolution in it. It's probably quite hard to get to, you know, obviously, like, I don't know, the pilot or Battle of the Binary Stars in the first season. Well, you probably could go from Errand of Mercy if you wanted. But, like, almost everything is seeded in that first season, with the possible exception of a comedy episode. That was the mm. only thing that I could think of that was missing. And, I mean, would you count Shore Leave, maybe? Would that kind of fit under that bracket? Shore Leave, and then, you know, Tomorrow's Yesterday has some oh, comedic elements to it. But yeah. you're right. It it is very you know more straightforward. Not not quite the the glint in their eye. Yeah. I mean, well, sitting on edge forever. The first half of it's kind of light, considering how dark it gets at the end. You know, mechanical <laughs> rights yeah, pickers and whatnot. <laughs> we, I love that we 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 start with McCoy having a drug overdose. That's light and fluffy compared to where we're going with this um, <laughs> deranged lunatic um, on the loose. Um, but yeah, no. I, but I mean, other than that, though, and this is kind of one of the things that's interesting, because you did point out the malleability of Star Trek, which I think is a key part of its success and massively underrated. Because um, I, I think it's kind of, you know, not to go on one of those tangential points about arguing what Star Trek is or should be or, or these sort of vague <laughs> philosophical pronouncements. But one of the reasons why I think Star Trek has endured um, is because it can be anything that it really needs to be in a given moment and that you have that flexibility there as well. Because, I mean, you know, you can write an episode, and it is episodic, it's back to zero every week, but you have the springboard, as you point out, of going, let's do a Western this week with Mud's Women, or, you know, let's do a trial episode with Court Martial, for example, or, you know, let's do a survival story with Arena, or let's do a bunch of actors trapped together in a confined space with Galileo 7. You can get, a, like, the first season demonstrates a large amount of the flexibility of the concept. Let's do a submarine, op uh, uh, you know, episode with Balance of Terror. You know, that sort of stuff. There's a, like an incredible sense of, and again, one imagines it's fevered desperation that's driving it as much as anything else, but a real sense of actually this concept that we built, which is a bunch of people on a spaceship traveling through space, which is not, as you point out, it's absolutely not a new concept. You're looking at stuff like Lost in Space, but obviously Forbidden Planet, which has been cited as a potential influence on it, you know, and there's various arguments about the extent to which that's true or not true. Like, it's, it's not a new concept of a bunch of people on a ship in space journeying outwards. But you watch the first season of Star Trek, and it's really impressive how quickly they figure out, well, actually, that concept itself it's fairly elastic and we can do whatever we want with it. We can do a commentary on Vietnam if we want to, you know, in um, Taste of Armageddon. You know, we can do 
uh, story about hippies in this side of paradise. Uh, we can do a time travel love story about the rise of fascism um, in the city on the edge of forever. And you're like, there's there's a real sense of kind of, you know, watching the first season, it's hard to imagine. And again, the level of hard work going in there, because nobody doing it, I think, expected it to last the way that it did. But you're watching it and you're going, I can see exactly why this lasted. It's that kind of wonderful push and pull you have with the season, which is kind of magical to me watching it. Yeah, and you know, there's episodes that are so of the time, like you clearly know what they're talking about then, but they apply to today even just as much. You know, like an episode that doesn't get a lot of play or a lot of discussion, I think it's A Taste of Armageddon. You mentioned it briefly earlier. And I think that is such a brilliant sci-fi concept where you you show up and there's this planet where like, well, you know, war is destructive and kind of want to keep our society going. So uh, we're at war with this other planet, but we want to keep our infrastructure okay, so we're just going to go kill ourselves instead of actually going to war. It's like, whoa, 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> like, <laughs> like the, 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 what forces you out of your animosity towards the other party is is the cost of war, and you've removed that, and now it's just a matter of numbers, and, and I think that that's a universal kind of theme about warfare, which I think is great, and for whatever oh. reason, I mean, it's a, it's a really solid episode. It's like a B-plus episode, yeah. uh, so that's probably, it's not like, very top tier so it gets lost in the shuffle of an other you know of this excellent season and perhaps you know if this was in the third season or the second season it might get more play but this is kind of lost in the middle here i think people forget about it but to me that's when i always zero you know being a star trek podcaster talking about it every week you zero in on certain things and this is one that i'm like oh this is one that nobody really talks about yeah. much and again I, I would agree with that and again you, you talk about that thing where it has that again that that sense of universality to it because obviously all this stuff is informed by as we point out the stuff that was in the air in the zeitgeist listeners can't see but i'm gesturing wildly with my hands <laughs> towards some invisible zeitgeist hovering over my head um but like you have this stuff that is very contemporary and very concurrent and you have stuff like say the counterculture creeping in with spock's psychic abilities but you also as you point out you do have that timeless quality to it because of that sense of allegory um because obviously like a taste of armageddon was written very specifically by gene alcoon to refer to coverage of the vietnam war where he was concerned and again this is before the ted offensive he was entirely right uh when he made this observation it was a very sharp observation that the idea that war was being sanitized through consumption of media where it was reduced down to charts and facts and figures and those facts and figures were being consumed by people on the evening news and that was disconcerting to him because it removed a lot of the visceral quality and the horror of war um that you associate with it and it's very telling that the next year when you had the ted offensive how which yeah a private it was a private little war uh had some very interesting scheduling where it was kind of written and produced before the ted offensive and broadcast afterwards uh, <laughs> which is a very changed dynamic but you have the ted offensive which hammered home the horror of war with through those images which are quite rightly iconic and horrifying even today that kind of reinstilled and kind of changed the way that people thought about the vietnam war so the point is very accurate in that front but like if you want to apply it today it's easy enough to do just drone warfare like yeah. That's the thing. You have you you sanitize the idea of warfare for a population by turning it into something that you see on screens, something that is abstract, and and kind of you know removed from the the horror horror and the visceral. Yeah, quality you're literally it. sitting in a control room somewhere pushing a button as opposed to you know having to look Do someone in the eye and pull yeah. a trigger. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then it kind of works in that sense. I mean, even things like you want to pick like a couple more Devil in the Dark, which is an evergreen allegory because it fits mm -hmm. for any type of uh, misunderstanding. I mean, you know, obviously in the early six, in the mid sixties, you're thinking civil rights movement. You think the idea of like people, the other, people, the outsider, yeah, the outsider, the other, the other race. But I mean, you can apply that just as equally today. To, you know, twenty years ago, you could apply it to gay rights. The, you know, now you could apply it to trans rights. But it, it's this idea of you know, it has 
it is anchored in a human experience in the moment it was written, but it has this broad quality where it somehow becomes kind of universal as a result. You know, um, Errand of Mercy, which is very obviously rooted in kind of the anxiety around Vietnam and the Kennedy era expansion and the idea of the Cold War as kind of a self-perpetuating kind of concept. You can apply that just as easily to concepts like the war on terror, if you want to pick an example, or kind of any number of like the, the kind of hatred stoking that kind of happens, you know, even at the moment where politicians kind of drag up this fear and anxiety and kind of discomfort in order to kind of further or kind of cement their kind of agenda or it's going to secure the status quo. It has this quality that applies across time to it. And I mean, even things like the city on the edge of forever, like literally in the name, you have that mm. kind of concept where, and again, I love the idea that the, and I love, also I love the idea that we're dismissing Operation Annihilate, but let's pretend the city <laughs> on the edge of forever is like the season finale, the first season finale of Star Trek. But you have this idea, and I really love it, that like the first season of Star Trek builds towards the revelation that the origin of the Star Trek universe um, is the Second World War, and in particular America's involvement in the Second World War, which mm. is a, a moment that is really kind of metaphorically powerful because, you know, obviously in a, in a sense of its internal continuity, it's correct because it makes it clear that, you know, obviously if the, the Axis powers win, you know, the world is doomed and it's, it's destroyed and, you know, that sort of stuff. But in terms of like, you know, even behind the scenes, you have people who had served in the Second World War, like Roddenberry and Kuhn, and they were the people who were shaping the show. They're the people who were writing the show and defining what Star Trek was. But even, like, as I mentioned, Star Trek itself existing as an extension of that kind of post-war status quo and the post-war kind of, like, America vision of not only itself, but its place in the world. And That's I fascinating. Really... I had never really considered you know, World War II as the quote-unquote origin of the Star Trek universe, much in the same way, you know, in the real world, in our yeah. timeline, yes. And then, you know, we have the... Because I always, like, you say that terminology, and I think, oh, I think Zephyr Cochran, First Contact, that is, like, the origin of the Star Trek universe. But that's kind of a, a one-two punch there I had to consider. That, that's fascinating. And also, to that point, you know, there's that scene, uh, there's so much greatness in Sitting on the Edge Forever, but there's the scene where Spock's like, well, she was a leader, the killer was a leader, was leader of a peace movement. And Kirk's like, oh, that's right, peace was the way. And then this is a very important message. Spock says, she was right but at the wrong time. Yeah. So that shows you, you know, we just said, you know, there's a time for action, there's a time for peace, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it, it addresses the paradox of, you know, the utopian future with having to get down and dirty and get to war yeah. in the present. Well, that's it, exactly. And I mean, you look at things like, say, obviously, the, the World War Three and kind of even the eugenics wars in Space Seed and the idea that mm -hmm. all of this is tied up. And again, that that's all kind of a metaphor for the idea that, you know, you know the the idea of a prosperous American century, and it's worth noting, you know, the second half of the American century, the second half of the twentieth century, you know, eventually became a relatively stable kind of place. It was a relatively prosperous kind of place for you know the places that had traditionally been war torn and kind of damaged and destroyed. It was a stable political time. That all of that is rooted in like this horrific conflict that completely changed the geopolitical landscape. And again, you can see that sort of literalized in, in Star Trek itself. I mean, obviously Zephyr Cochran later on goes on to become a metaphor for Gene Roddenberry himself. In terms of the city on the edge of forever, and this is something where I am definitely reading too much into it, but I have always kind of loved, is that um, the city on the edge of forever is like, I like to think of it as the first season finale with Operation Annihilate as a kind of a, a chaser, if you will. Um, and I love that the last season of Enterprise actually begins with kind of an episode that is nowhere near as good, but is a nice thematic mirror to that point. Because you go back to, you have another journey to the Second World War where it's mm -hmm. happening. And again, you have a reinforcement of the idea that the Star Trek universe begins with the Second World War because changing the Second World War rewrites and re and kind of destroys and kind of damages the kind of Star Trek universe and the idea 
behind it. And I always thought that was a nice little symmetry that kind of was never really appreciated or picked up on. It would help if the episodes were actually good, though. Um, <laughs> well, that, that's an excellent segue to kind of perhaps wrap things up here for just here. And I know we were throwing a lot of flack on Operation Annihilate, but there are other there are a couple of episodes, in my opinion, Ooh. that are not all star episodes. OK, OK. Defend, if you will. Give me some hot take that will change my point of view on Miri, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, yeah, okay, well, Miri is, yeah, Miri, coming up with a hot take defense of Miri is kind of tough, but I do like, again, this is the thing that runs through the first season where you can tell there's a sense of Star Trek figuring out how it stands on certain issues. And one of those issues is counterculture and the youth movement and kind of like the question of how those things stand. And you can see the show working through that. It's very, very anxious about teenagers throughout its run. Charlie X is the most obvious example. Um, Miri is another one. It's like a planet full of children and they're trying to figure out like what planet full of children who have taken over the world and how terrible that is. And you have even kind of throughout that you have. But one of the interesting things is that as the show goes on, you get a kind of a gradually more kind of nuanced view of counterculture. You get the show becoming a lot looser and a bit more open-minded about these things. So in Charlie X and in Miri, children are horrifying concepts that are just going <laughs> to arrive and destroy the world that they inherit. Um, but as you as you get on, you get this kind of more open-mindedness. And I suspect DC Fontana is a large part of this. But you look at things like, say, This Side of Paradise, which is... Very much in a similar vein. It's a story about like idleness and the idea that, you know, a hippy dippy world is a world where nothing will ever get done. And it's that stuff that you described where you have the push and pull within the city on the edge of forever, where you have idealism on one hand and practicality on the other, and you have to strike a balance between the two. And this side of paradise is the episode that kind of figures out a way to make that sympathetic because Spock does become a hippie. And Spock does have to be cured, in inverted commas, at the end with a good old-fashioned fight sequence because we figured out William Shatner's really good at that now. Um, but you have, um, but within that, you still have a great deal of sympathy and compassion because it's seen as a tragedy that Spock can't go, that this world can't exist in the way that it should. So if I were to defend Miri, I would say that it is an important step on the road to that sort of realization towards Star Trek figuring out what it needs to be. And also, it does play into your whole dead civilization. Something's gone horribly wrong. You know, this wasteland. It's it's actually the town from uh, Andy Griffith's show. <laughs> Americana has been destroyed, and it's in the most pure sense. It's all gone terribly wrong. So anyway, but no. So yeah, it's. I think with uh, it, Star Trek is like pizza or fill in the blank with whatever other euphemism you want to make. Even when it's bad, it's good, right? So, you know, so there is things to find. You know, we talk about Operation Annihilate. We talk about Miri a little bit. Now, the ultimate challenge for you, uh, oh, Darren. Don't the, do this. Don't do this. The alternative factor. That, that's the one bad episode. That's the one episode of the first season. That is those are those are my three. The, the, those three are the ones. And Mud's Women's kind of on the fence for me. But, like, if I had to say, yeah, like, well, three well, or four episodes. <laughs> those are the ones. Mud's that Women I, has its own get issues. I mean. Yeah. Okay, so. I have nothing on the alternative factor. The alternative factor is my one write-off from the season. It's the one episode that I look at and I go, there is no way to make that work. I can maybe, you know, some trippy dippies that are like psychedelic, you know, the world is changing sort of stuff going on there, trying to figure out how to make sense of it all. But it, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't work for me. It doesn't work at all. It's the, it's the stinker of the season, if we're being entirely honest. The episode that I look at and I go... And when I was reviewing it, it was the episode I looked at and I went, there is nothing I can do here. 
There is nothing I can work <laughs> with. You are giving me nothing. We talked about unused pilots and things like that. It's fascinating that this episode almost got scrapped, you know, because uh, John Barrymore dropped out. They were they filmed some scenes and they they changed the script. He was dissatisfied, so they they went. They almost got to the point where they had filmed like a third of the episode and they just weren't going to finish it. And I just think, and I think that would have been a very fascinating thing that the lost episode of Star Trek now. As we talk about sixties, very different time. They would have just thrown it away. We never would have. I mean, in theory, I mean, it might have been in a vault somewhere. It may have popped up a couple years ago. But to think that there was almost like a third of an episode that was completed, and then we'd sit here and we talk about, oh man, what an amazing episode that would have been, That's right? Exactly. <laughs> you you would you would see fan remakes of the Alternative Factor, and like they'd be really good, and we'd be like, this remake is pretty good, but it can't capture the brilliance of what was going to be the alternative factor, which is kind of amazing. You'd see, like, you'd oh my god, it would be like um the close comparison, I think it was Shada, um, in Doctor Who. I don't know if you if you're familiar with the Doctor Who lore. But what happened is at so um it was written by Douglas Adams, who is probably best known for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. He's a cult figure. He's universally beloved. He was script editor on Doctor Who. He wrote one of the show's best loved kind of serials ever made, which is a, the City of Death, which is wonderful because it's a pun in French. Um, it only becomes a pun if you read the title in French. But the um, he wrote this episode called Shadow, um, and it was going to be the season finale. But what happened is there was a strike during the production, and the episode was scrapped. Um, however, because Doctor Who fans are completely obsessive and won't let anything die ever, um, there have been various attempts to reproduce it, including like an animated version of the episode featuring the original cast recordings and stuff like that. And it's fascinating to watch the kind of filling in of the negative space around it, because it's almost, it's as you pointed out, if it existed and it was, if it existed, it would be a thing and we'd have an opinion on it and it would be, you know, it might be bad, it might be good, it might be whatever it is. But because it doesn't exist, it becomes almost mythical. It becomes an object that is everything that we ever wanted to be because we pour our expectations and our ambitions into it it's like if i tell you there's a lost episode written by the guy who wrote hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy your immediate response is well that would be the best thing ever and it's a shame it doesn't exist and i imagine if i told you something like oh there's a star trek episode where this guy is kind of being thrown across dimensions as they're being destroyed and it's locked in an immortal battle with himself for the fate of the universe you'd be like well that sounds like a pretty sounds like a pretty epic episode i mean that sounds pretty amazing right and then you watch the episode that actually aired and you're like, yeah, I can see this. This didn't work. <laughs> it's, it is funny how fandom works. We, all, we always want to see these alternate cuts of things and director's editions, things of that nature. And this would have been unprecedented in Star Trek. Is I, there have been no other episodes that were kind of half completed and actually thought about being abandoned. And, you know, they push it. We talk about production edit order. This is produced about halfway through the season. That they were so, I mean, yeah, <laughs> like they were yeah. so desperate to not push, air it. Push, push. You, got, you got Gene Kuhn just banging out scripts, like classic scripts, like in two days to kind of put this thing off, you know? And <laughs> they finally air it, like at the very end of the season, almost at the very end of the season. Uh, and then if it does come to air, and it, it has become the infamous episode that it is. I was really, ca- I, I opened up my review of it here, actually, to see if I could find something in there that I, you know, myself six years ago had found it. Let's do. Um, and I was really catty six years ago. Um, my, my positive takeaway, my kind of like shine on this particular apple amounts to the fact that the alternative factor might possibly be, and that's, that's emphasis might possibly be not the worst thing to happen to Star Trek in its 50 years of existence is damning with faint praise, but I'm sure the episode will take whatever it can get. (laughs) Saucy. And and there, you know, I I might've said this in one of our previous conversations, but you know, I, I would encourage you to to look into perhaps 
collecting and publishing all your Star Trek reviews because I would totally read that. <laughs> that is a very I would I would love to just sit down and and re- I mean, obviously I do online anyway, but but you, you put so much as as all the listeners can tell by all your commentary, you put so much thought and effort into all these Star Trek takes. You know, the, your your reviews are always such an enjoyable read, very in depth. You know, and it, it, I know we're in the digital age now, and books are like. <laughs> You know, passe, <laughs> and the, and the, yeah, so passe, right? Uh, but really, it's it's that good, guys. So if if you if you enjoy all Darren's hot takes or even his not so hot takes, I would definitely recommend you go to the movie blog and check out all his Star Trek reviews. Not only does he do original series reviews, but I believe you've reviewed every series at this point, Darren. I haven't finished the Next Generation. Actually, is is my one okay. shame. Um, so I have finished the original series. I have finished Deep Space Nine. I have finished Voyager. I have finished Enterprise. I haven't done the animated series, which is on my to do list. And I s- got stuck around. What happened is, and this is this is really kind of sad and depressing. I got stuck around the third season of the Next Generation. Um, and I was writing those reviews, and then I popped over to Deep Space Nine. I was writing Deep Space Nine. I was having such a good time. I was like, I got to the fifth season of Deep Space Nine. I was like, I should probably like do. Voyager, sorry, I got to the third season. I'm like, I'll do Voyager alongside these. And by that stage, by the time Deep Space Nine ended, I was waited so far in, it was like, I'll get back to the next generation sometime. It'll be fine. Uh, but it is on my to-do list at some vague point in the future. Probably, I suspect, I'll do the animated series next because that's a quantifiable block of Star Trek. That's a manageable yes. block as opposed to 100 episodes, uh, which is a bit more ambitious. And you can finally complete the five-year mission of Kaplan Kirk and Enterprise, right, Darren? Oh, we can indeed. We can indeed. Although, <laughs> I mean, that's a bit of a, again, that's a separate podcast, one suspects. <laughs> How exactly do you measure the five-year mission? What do you fit in to fill in the gaps there? Um, well, clearly, I mean, just, just I, I think where no one has gone before happened before. All right. All right. So they went on the five-year mission. Season one, two, and three yeah. is, see, is year one, two, and three. All and right. then they had another bit of a refit and got an extra turbo lift and a rec room and got some new alien crew members and they finished off those two uh, two seasons and that's your five year mission. And, and so. you count the, the two animated seasons as two years separately. Even well, though, they are two seasons, are they not? <laughs> All right, I didn't have to, no need to get defensive, Zach. I we only, like this... we only, it's, it's it, you know, sure we only saw six adventures in that fifth year, but. <laughs> It was a boring Sorry, year. Like they did a lot of star charting and things like that. It was not a lot to talk about in that fifth year, you know? Like I feel like I'm coming across very aggressive, you know? Like, it's like, explain why you love where no man has gone before so much. Um, it's like, oh, so you can't those, though you do get that, that fifth season as an entire season then. Um, that wasn't how I meant it. I'm sorry if that no, came no. across with that. Mysterious. No, no. Uh, <laughs> I just, I, I, like, no, I, I enjoyed the debate over the animated series. It's a fascinating uh, lightning rod oh, with a lot of Star Trek it's, uh, it's, fandom. It's, it's something else. Um, and again, I haven't watched it in years, so I'm very curious. Because part of me wonders if my memory of it is accurate. It's one of those things. Because again, it's... I've read the concepts and I know I've watched the episodes. It's like, so I know things like the Infinite Vulcan exist. But I'm also like, is it as weird as I remember it being? So I'm like, I'm looking forward to that. All right. Well, we're looking forward to reading your reviews as well. So Darren, on that note, where can people find you out there on the internet? Ah, perfect. So you can find me on everywhere you want to be, baby. Maybe not actually. Uh, but I am in, in multiple places. So, um, I'm at the movie blog, uh, which is my own blog that I write at and I kind of, I do regular reviews on there and I post whenever I can. That's my own site. I also write at the Escapist or Escapist magazine online. So escapistmagazine.com, uh, where I do two features weekly. I occasionally do opinion pieces. Um, and I do a recommendation on Sunday if you're looking for a bit of pop culture that you want to enjoy. Um, and you can also find me podcasting uh, where I podcast weekly with uh, my good friend Andrew Quinn and we talk about the words on the two 
250 is the name of the podcast, and it covers the IMDb's top 250 and bottom 100 movies of all time. And uh, actually, just as, as this podcast is airing, obviously Christmas is coming up, and we'll be doing our own Christmas episode. Last week, we'll have talked about The Irishman, all three and a half hours of it, and to mark Christmas and the gap between New Year's, we thought, what better way to do it than to talk about The Apartment? And we'll be discussing that with the Irish writer and director, Rena Gregor. She's come in to talk to us about that as well, so I'm really looking forward to that. That should be a fun discussion, hopefully. Alrighty, Darren. Well, always a pleasure to podcast with you, you, talk some Star Trek. We finished our original series trilogy. The first season of Star Trek, the original series, isn't the only thing we're talking about on Trek FM this week. Here's a quick look at what else you might have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. I knew from the beginning it was going to be a very large and complicated undertaking. I was asked by the editor and the licensor to come up with a storyline for Picard that would deal with the fallout of what I unleashed in my novel Section 31 Control, in which Section 31's crimes, and in fact its very existence, are publicly exposed to the Federation at large as well as its interstellar neighbors. Earl Grey. Troy looks down at her empty stomach. Let me do this part. I'm going to act it. Okay. Troy looks down at her empty stomach and frowns telepathically. <laughs> oh, I wish. Listeners, you, could. you couldn't see it, but I did that. <laughs> oh, okay. LaForge. <laughs> Computer, locate a big thing of chips. <laughs> to the journey! What about the basics, planet? That planet's not bad. There's a lot of wide open spaces. You just have to avoid going in the caves. Yeah. I mean, anthropologically speaking. No spelunking on that planet. You can spelunk on the <laughs> board unicomplex, but you can't spelunk on that planet. No. The Edge, a Star Trek Discovery podcast. That he said... <laughs> he was taking he, the new body out for a ride? Yeah, that was great. <laughs> I mean, it was a great line. It just doesn't really fit what really happened. Like... He wasn't out there dating other people, you know? Like, well, he was trying to figure out who this new Culber was, you know? No, I know, but it, I, it was I like funny. It was lighthearted. It, right. It just didn't, it just doesn't fit what he actually did. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all these shows and find out what we're talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, you can get the show on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can stream and download the MB3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. If you would like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can always find us on trekfm slash contact and look at the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and please leave us a voice message. You can also contact us through Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM, and The Babel Conference. Type The Babel Conference, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook or go to our website at TrekFM.com and click Discussion on the menu bar. Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit Patreon.com slash TrekFM, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash TrekFM. You'll find our current goals, our different milestone contribution levels, along with all the great perks we have for you. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credit, seats on our content development team, and more. 
We really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. Speaking of Patreon, thank you as always to our associate producers for Standard Orbit. They are Norman C. Lau, Nick Anastasio, Tim Robertson, Richard Marquez, Corey Elrod, Dan Rhodes, and Mike Richards. Your contributions, your help, your support, they mean the world to us, and we appreciate you being associate producers on Standard Orbit. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at MoronZach, that's M-O-O-R-E-O-N-Z-A-C-H. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always Hold On To Smallville, where we talk about each and every episode of that Young Superman show. You can find us on Twitter at AlwaysMallville, with one S. I'm also the co-host of Franchise Fatigue, a podcast where we look at sequels, remakes, movie franchises, and when a franchise gets fatigued. You can find us on Twitter at UFPEarth, part of the United Federation of Podcasts. So thanks everyone for listening, and join us again next time here on Trek FM for another episode of Standard Orbit. <laughs>